Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? It is awesome again to be back, and we've already said that, uh, but it really is. I, I, I told my kids um, when we got back, I was going to do what Chris Farley did when he went on uh, the uh, Late Show with David Letterman and start in the back and run through, touch everybody, and do cartwheels and all that different stuff, and then I tried to do a cartwheel. No, no I, didn't. I think I can do a cartwheel, but we're not going to put you through all that. Uh, yeah, prove it. That's good. All right, we'll, uh, we'll work on that together, but we're not going to do it now. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is really great, man. That was a loud meet and greet because, you know, we're just made to be together. And I pray by the grace of God, it makes sense for us to keep being together. And as I already said, we're going to continue to evaluate that. But what we are going to do for the remainder of this summer is we are going to dive into the book and in a way that I think is going to really, really encourage you, and I hope today kind of sets the course for you. The series that we're going to do is called Retold, True Stories from History, because the Bible is true. It's one of the things that makes it unique from every other book that claims to be the Word of God. It's not just um, a philosopher's account. It's not just a collection of um, wisdom sayings. The Bible alone, different than Hindu mythology, different than the Koran, different than um, the Buddhist holy writings. It's anchored in history. It is a telling of his story, his being the creator God who loves us and wants us to know him because he knows in us knowing him that we'll experience life as he intended us to experience it because we have bought a lie about who he is. And so God, in the context of history, and you can go back and look at the way God worked through history. There's a reason that God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because if you're wondering how God's going to treat you, he's giving you his CV. He's giving you his story and his resume about how he interacts with rebellious, foolish, hard-hearted humans. And you're going to see it's with loving kindness and grace and slow to anger, but by no means will he let the guilty go unpunished. And he doesn't want us to experience the judgment that we deserve. He wants us to experience life and be reconciled to him and then be a source of blessing to others. And so the Bible is showing you what God has done, what he's doing, and what's going to happen. And there are some stories that we teach the youngest, not members of Watermark, because you can't be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ until you understand what makes you a part of the church, which is coming to an understanding of who God is and acknowledging what separated you from God and then calling out to God for um, grace that you might receive mercy through the provision that he gave you so you can be then reconciled to him and you're called out of darkness into his marvelous light and then you're a member of his body. And, and most zero to four-year-olds haven't completely understood sin and death and judgment yet. That's why we don't do child baptisms, because the Bible talks about believer baptisms. But what you start to do, if you love people, is right away you begin to teach them truth. And so we, from basically zero up until you move into uh, our, our K-1 race, or the beginning of our ministry to our children, where we're ministering to our children, not just doing child care, but we're discipling them and calling them to a life of repentance until when they get to our high school ministry here, our student ministry, 
We just love them and say, hey, you can continue to come be a part of this, but you got to make a decision about who this Jesus is. There's no confirmation class, because confirmation class, there is what's called confirmation bias, which I don't know, maybe you guys do, um, how many folks go through confirmation class and don't stand up there at the end of that semester and get their white Bible with their name engraved on it with grandma and grandpa there, and they all go out and get a nice brunch. I mean, the affirmation rate of kids in confirmation class is probably close to 100%. There's not very many kids who go, I don't think I'm gonna confirm what my parents believe and what I've been raised to understand at this moment. A lot of kids really haven't been around the church and they show up for a confirmation class and then they go on. But by the time they get to high school here, we're just saying, hey, we're gonna keep loving you and pouring into you, but it's time for you guys to decide. If you wanna follow Jesus, there's a membership class over there, you ought to go get a, a, a big old taste of it. And there's a thing called community, which you gotta pursue. And God's given you a gift if you're a believer and you ought to employ it in serving one another. And so we call our students to membership. If they're not members, we keep pouring into them, but we pour into them not expecting them to act like believers. We don't expect that um, kids who don't know Jesus, when they go off to college, lose their faith. We just wanna tell them before they go, hey, just so you know, just to be clear, it doesn't look like you have a faith, you've never embraced the faith, you've never been sharpened or admonished or encouraged, and so we love you, and so we're not gonna be surprised when we hear you go off to college and that you don't experience what Jesus wants you to experience there. We do something called the Bible biggies for our zero to five-year-olds. And then we start to disciple them in the way of wisdom when they get to kindergarten all the way through fifth grade, where we talk about wisdom living and attributes of what it means to live the good life that God shows you that you should live. And by the way, none of us fully live that way. And so here's why Jesus is the perfect example of the good life and why you want to know him and take his grace. That's what we do in our children's ministries. Zero to five, Bible biggies. K through five, um, fifth grade, this is the good life. There is no one good but Jesus. You ought to repent and follow him and then learn his ways. Sixth grade through 12th grade, is he your Jesus? What we're doing over the next 10 weeks is we're gonna sync up with our zero to five-year-old Bible biggies. And parents, you are the primary disciplers of your children. You should know these stories, not just the narrative, but the meaning. You're going to see Jesus is the star of every story, even the ones in the Old Testament. It all points to Jesus. And some of the stories that we're gonna tell are from the New Testament. Some are from the Old, but it's always gonna be about Jesus because he is the visible image of the invisible God. And so these are stories you think you know, but you may not know them the way you need to know them because we don't just tell our kids stories. We're not just opening up Grimm's fairy tales. These are not just Aesop's fables. This is God revealing himself. So retold true stories from history that can change your eternity. Now I got a tough job today because I'm gonna tell you to stay with me while I tell you probably a story that is so familiar to you that you're gonna have a hard time sticking with me, but I think you're going to be surprised. So last night, because I knew I was gonna do this, um, I, I had my college-age son sit down with me. I go, bro, have you ever watched The Sixth Sense? And he goes, I don't think so. Okay, stop what you're doing, sit down, we're watching The Sixth Sense. Now I'm just gonna tell you something right here, okay? I'm about to tell you what happens in the movie The Sixth Sense. It's not just a spoiler alert, I'm gonna ruin the movie, all right? And don't tell me, oh, I'm gonna watch it tonight. All right, it's 20 years old. All right, 
So tune out if you want to, all right? And go watch it tonight. But the guy dies at the beginning of the movie. I mean, they shoot him, so it's not like I'm telling you anything you're not going to see. But the guy's dead in the whole movie. Now, what's so funny about this is my wife and I were told to watch Nate Bargazzi, um, who's a stand-up comic, and he does a bit in there about marital fights and about the silent treatment. And uh, what was really funny is he talks about the sixth sense. He goes, let me just tell you how weird um, marriages are and how we kind of don't talk to each other. We think it's so normal sometimes for couples when they are fighting to have a, the silent treatment that we watch a movie called The Sixth Sense and the entire movie, the guy's wife isn't talking to him and we think that's more normal than the fact that he was shot and was dead and is somehow still in the movie. It's pretty funny. He goes, it's like The Sixth Sense is a marital movie. We think we're watching a marriage movie about marriage and awkward lack of communication, all right? Well, let me just tell you, The Sixth Sense is not a marriage movie and the story I'm about to tell you today is not what you think it is. So, if you watch The Sixth Sense as a marriage movie, you're gonna miss the whole thing. And if you take this story today to be something that teaches you simply how you are to do good works, then you're gonna miss the whole story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Let me read it to you. Are you ready? Now stick with me, because I think you think you know the movie. I'm gonna show you, you may not. Oh, Father, would you open our eyes? Would you let us see what it is that you want us to see from this text? Don't let us go, oh, yeah, 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 we know the story, Todd, right? There's three guys, last guy, does a good thing, be a good Samaritan. No, Father, open the eyes of our heart. Let us see you. Amen. Now, um, before I read the parable of the good Samaritan, I want to tell you why Jesus told parables. Because this is really, really important, all right? He tells parables because he is trying to do two things that seem to be completely at odds with one another. And I'm gonna read to you from Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. So Matthew 13, 10 through 17. This is why Jesus, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus speaks a lot in parables, about 40 of them, if you're curious. Um, there's an old statement that it is said, if you want somebody to know something, you tell them. If you want somebody to understand something, you tell them again. If you want somebody to love something, you tell them a story. And so Jesus wants us to love truth. And so he tells a lot of stories. But here's what he's doing when he tells the parables. In, in Matthew chapter 13, what you're gonna see is it's, it, Matthew 13 shows up in all of our Bibles right after Matthew 12. And Matthew 12 is a very important section of scripture because in Matthew 12, the leadership of the nation of Israel, like the leadership of most of our country goes, ah, you know, we're still all about being God's people and putting in God we trust. We're still saying our little pledge of allegiance, one nation under God, but by and large, we're not under God and we're not really about what God wants. And in fact, if you tell us, you Jesus, that you are going to be the one that we need to know in order to know God, we reject you. We think you're a blasphemer. We think you're a devil. We think that what you're doing that's amazing that we've never seen done before is not done by the Holy Spirit. It's done by an unholy spirit and we reject you. And I don't know what we're gonna do, but we're not doing it with you. That's Matthew 12. And so in Matthew 13, Jesus starts telling stories. 
Now here's the two reasons Jesus tells a parable, to reveal truth. And here's the other reason he tells a parable, to hide it. Now is that not the craziest thing you ever heard? Now how do I know that? Well, here's why. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10 through 17. Jesus answered the question, why do you speak to them in parables? The disciples said, well, I'm gonna tell you. To you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, the ones that just said, I'm not the way, the truth, and the life, that I'm not doing this by the Holy Spirit in relationship with the Father as the, um, as the incarnate God that is here with you, to them it's not been granted to see that. For whoever has, he says, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Does that sound like a gracious God? The one who has, I'm gonna give more. The one who doesn't have, what they do have is gonna be taken away from them. Now he's not talking here about material possessions. What he's talking about here is understanding. That makes sense. If you understand that I'm here to teach you more about the Father, you're gonna lean in and you're gonna wanna know more about what I'm teaching the Father. If you've rejected that the Father is revealing himself through me, that I'm the exact representation of his nature, that I spoke through the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, but now, at the fulfillment of time, here comes the final and fullest revelation of God. I mean, the word is made flesh. If you reject the word, even your basic understanding of God is gonna be diminished and you're gonna pervert and destroy the, the Old Testament the rest of your life. Do you see what he's saying? And so now he's gonna tell you a story. And so he says, therefore I speak to them in parables. Parables, I come alongside to explain. Um, it's what it means. And so he says, because while while seeing, they don't see, and while hearing, they don't hear, and they don't understand. And then he's going to quote from Isaiah 28. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but you'll not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would have seen with their eyes, and they would have heard with their ears, and understand it with their heart, and they would have returned, and I would have healed them, and I would have loved nothing more than to heal them but they don't wanna be healed because they don't even think they're sick. Let me just tell you this morning, there are some people who will sit in here and they don't think they're sick and they think they're gonna hear a story and they're gonna despise certain people in the story and think they're better than those people and they don't understand what Jesus is saying is you're more like those people than you are the one that's the hero of the story. And you're sick. You need to know how sick you are so you run to a physician, the divine one who will heal you from being beaten and left for dead and without hope. There's somebody that's come, he's stolen from you, he's tried to kill you and he has killed you effectively in relationship with God. He's destroyed life as God intended and he's destroyed your relationship with God and there is no chance for you to ever on your own recover and may be made well again. And if you don't understand that's your state, sinner, all of us, then this story is not going to mean much to you. And you're going to think Jesus is giving you little tips and techniques. So when you stand before God and the scales of justice are weighed, there's more good Samaritan in you than there is bad actor. And you'll slide in. And there's no sliding in. You need salvation. And salvation comes through Jesus alone, not through you being a good Samaritan. But some of you are gonna hear this story and you're not gonna get it because you don't think you're sick. Jesus is trying to help a guy that he tells a story to, to know you're sick. 
not this is how you can make yourself acceptable. Told you. Told you you haven't been watching the right movie. Jesus does what he says in Matthew 13, 10 through 17 because of Matthew eleven twenty through 24. Matthew eleven twenty through 24 says this. He began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent, even though there was an abundance of revelation. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, so let me just let you into this because those are names you may not know anything about. Jesus hung out in and around the Sea of Galilee most of his life. He never traveled more than really 70 miles from where he was born. 70 miles. Most of what he did, he did about uh, 15 to 20 miles from where he was born, over there around the Sea of Galilee and in a town called Capernaum, was kind of his home base of ministry. Right next to Capernaum, I mean, just a half a day's walk, is Bethsaida and Chorazin and other communities that he would go to and he would perform lots of miracles. Further up the coast, where the pagans were, were Tyre and Sidon. And uh, further down the coast, where the, the pagans were, was Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, it's going to be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, verse 22, in the day of judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, you're not going to be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll descend to Hades. For the, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. But I say to you, it's going to be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. In other words, the more revelation you have, the greater your judgment. Now, I've talked about this in the past, and I don't know if the judgment is actually going to be hotter. I don't know how it can be any hotter than a lake of fire, but I think one of the things that's going to be true is when you're there and you've been given revelation, you've been given the answers to the test, and you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, not just through general revelation and the loud voice of conviction in your heart, but also through the teaching of special revelation of the word of God, you're at watermark week in and week out, and you hear us talk about regular attenders. Uh, being irregular believers and repentance and availing yourself fully to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're just a good person, a religious person. You're a go-to-church person. You're a get-along person. You're a good Samaritan person. Careful. Because good Samaritans don't go to heaven. Christ followers go to heaven. People dependent upon Jesus Christ alone as the means that they can be saved to go to heaven. And we don't teach this story to your children so that they can learn to be nice to your, their other siblings and not be monsters in preschool, which is always a good idea. We teach this to the kids to let them know about the righteous standard of God. if we're teaching it correctly. So I hope our children's team is listening. Now listen. Um, you need to understand the context of even the story. In Luke chapter 10, where the story appears, Jesus had sent his disciples out to go and, and to um, do good works, which make um, good room for the good news and to declare that the kingdom of God is at hand. And they come back and they're rejoicing and um, there's all kinds of, of celebration that people are open to the fact that the Messiah is here and that the kingdom of God is going to come. And so Jesus gets away and in verse 21, he says this, this context is important. He says at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, which is the source of all our rejoicing. 
And he says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, this is well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, when you hear that, you go, oh, man, this might be a good stop place to stop and pray, and pray that the Son would reveal to you the justice, holiness, and mercy of the Father this morning. This would be a good spot for you to go, wait, I can't know who the Father is unless, Jesus, you show me who he is? That's what he just said. So here's just a good move on your part. You can reject it later, but I would just recommend to you that you take a position of humility because God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this might be a really good place for you to say, oh God, would you show me what it is you want me to know? Would you reveal to me why you told this story? Just right now, in, in, in the quietness of your heart, you might want to pray that. spirit go to work in the lives of folks that are listening with me. Turning to his disciples, turning now to my, my fellow members of the church, those of you that are here, that God has revealed the truth of who he is and your sin. Jesus said to them privately, I'm going to say it publicly, blessed watermark members, blessed true followers of Christ are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see. They, the, the ones that, that heard about the coming Messiah, the coming rescue of God, the coming goodness of God. They longed to see when that day would come, and you've seen it if you were alive when Jesus was there, and if you're looking back at what Jesus has done. These guys didn't see it. They didn't hear the things you hear, but you've heard it. This would be a good time for you to pray with me that you understand how blessed you are, and that you are living in a moment of history where there has never been a greater revelation of God unfolding who he is. Guys, I love the fact that America is seeing the brokenness of its dead God token honoring ways. I love that there's chaos that is seen because there's been a lot of chaos that has not been seen. And it's making people go, man, this doesn't look right. It's not been right. And this is a church problem because the church is the one that is to give us the solution to that which is causing all the problems. Instead of just kind of every now and then doing a good Samaritan little bit of work, sliding frozen turkeys into oppressed neighborhoods. God wants us to know there's a systemic problem in our hearts and it's sin and it manifests itself in policies and in prejudice, and in all kinds of vitriol towards one another. And I, I'm so glad that we're kind of going, this doesn't seem like our Father's world. It's not. And so Christian, speak into our Father's world and give people hope. And today, in the message that Jesus gives us, we're going to find how to turn it all around. Will you do what you're supposed to do? Let me just insert something here so I can make myself share the, the kind of punchline in just a little bit to this whole story. I went to lunch this week with some friends around here. There was, um, you know, five or six of us, and we went to um, grab a little bit of lunch. We went to Blue Sushi. One of the guys there liked sushi. I'm like, all right, I'm all in. So Blue Sushi down there in Walnut Hill. Um, you know, free advertising. Send me a gift certificate. Congratulations. <laughs> 20 grand, just 20,000 people just heard that. So that's where I was. It was good food, Right? <laughs> And uh, 
And while I was there, you know, like I always do, I'm engaging and building a relationship with the, with the person that's serving me. And the person that was serving me, uh, I asked her her name, and she told me her name was Genesis. I mean, come on, like layout, <laughs> right? Okay, so, so I, I try not to be completely corny right away. I go, man, that's a beautiful name. I like that name. And she goes, yeah, it's a really unusual name. I go, well, obviously, I mean, you know, do you know why your mom named you that? I mean, you know what it means, right? She goes, oh, yeah, it means, it means beginning. I go, right, it means beginning. Why did your mom choose that? Well, and she kind of went on and she told me. I said, well, do you, tell me about your faith. Do you have a faith? Do you have a story? And she just said to me, goes, well, I go to a church. And she mentioned the name of another large church in our area. And um, I go, awesome. I go, so here's what we're going to do, Genesis. I mean, let's just talk some more. I know you got some other tables that you're, um, you're helping out. But what I'd like to do, I want you to do me a, a favor because you hang out at a church and, um, and you like it. And, and I'm sure they teach you how to have a relationship with God. So I want you, before our meal's over, I want you to tell me if I wanted to begin a Genesis, have a Genesis to my relationship with God, what's the first thing I need to do? All right, deal? Can you do that sometime in the next hour and 15, 20 minutes? I'm going to be here. At some point, I'm going to come. It's, I'm telling you the quiz. Hey, Genesis, give me 30 seconds. If I wanted to begin a relationship with God, how would I do that? She goes, oh, okay. And so off she went. Stay tuned. All right? <laughs> if you know how to have a relationship with God, you're blessed. Do you live in that blessing? Do you respond to that blessing? Do you know why you've been blessed? Do you know what you're supposed to do with that blessing? Some of you think you're supposed to just do this story, and this story is there to tell you what you're to do once you've been blessed. No, this is a story to tell you that you need to be blessed. And it's true. If you're blessed, you're blessed to be a blessing. But you better not think you're being a blessing to others is going to bless you when you stand before a holy God because you're watching the movie the wrong way. So hanging out, when all this is going on, verse 25, a lawyer. Now, this is not John Grisham lawyer, okay? This is not Supreme Court lawyer. It's not a civil lawyer. It's not a judge. This is not a criminal defense attorney. This is not Perry Mason or I don't even know. That's, that really dates me. Um, so I don't know. who. This is not Bull. Is he a lawyer? Is Bull a lawyer? I don't know. This is not a lawyer. This is not Johnny Cochran. Does that date me? This is not that kind of lawyer. This is an expert in Old Testament law. This is a guy that studied Genesis all the way through the Pentateuch and the Torah, and he studied the Mishnah, which is just rabbinical um, explanations of the Pentateuch, and specifically the book of Leviticus, and explaining you how to follow the law that God gave you. That's what this guy did for a living. When people want to know, what's God want me to do? You'd go to this guy, and he would tell you. That guy stood up. Now he stood up not because he wanted to be blessed or not because he thought Jesus was a blessing. This guy stood up because he wanted to test Jesus. He wanted to put him um, in an awkward position because he was gonna see how this young hotshot rabbi answered, hey, sum up the whole law for me. Now look, this is um, not a difficult thing for Jesus. He knew the book, he had a lot to do with writing it. And, um, he passed the test with flying colors himself when he's asked this. In fact, let me just tell you, in Matthew chapter 22, there was a, another Pharisee that had come up to him and, and they asked him a question in Matthew 22 to test him. That's what it says in verse 35 of Matthew 22. It says this guy came up to Jesus, a lawyer in effect, and he said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? 
And Jesus is gonna respond this way. Watch, this is Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. Then verse 39, the second's light, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, because on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If you go back and look, in fact, at the 10 commandments, you're gonna find out that the first five of the 10 commandments, really four, largely have to do with the way you love God. And then five starts with honor your mother and father, because they're the ones gonna teach you the law of God, according to Deuteronomy 6. And then Six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 are how you love your brother. You don't murder, you don't commit adultery, you don't steal, you don't bear false witness, and you don't want what they have for yourself. So the 10 commandments are broken up that way. Love God and love others. Jesus says that's basically the whole thing. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4. That's Leviticus uh, 19, 18. That's the whole law. Love God, love others. That's what he says. Now, that, I tell you that because when you go back with me to Luke 10, you're gonna see that this rabbi, this lawyer knew what Jesus knew, but he was missing a huge point. And you don't want to miss the point that this rabbi missed. So if you want somebody to know something, you tell them. If you want them to understand something, you tell them again. And if you want somebody to love something, you tell them a story. I've already told you twice what you need to know, and I'm about to tell you a story. Because I want you to love your Jesus. This lawyer stood up, put him to test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I love this. This is the most important question you can ask. Yes, exactly the right question to exactly the right person. If you're not asking that question, you have no sense. What must I do to be right with God? It's the only, Genesis, how do I begin a relationship with God? I want to know. There's not, I don't care what kind of sushi you bring me. If you can't tell me how to start a relationship with God, this food is just going to, Wait me, have me live a little longer before I face certain judgment. So give me the food that leads to everlasting life, Genesis. Go think about it. Come back, you're a churchgoer. Surely you know. By the way, there's people all around you that expect you to serve that up when you're with them. That's why you're here on earth. To serve people that information. The blessed ones who have heard it should give it. You are blessed to be a blessing. You have received mercy to give mercy. Are you doing it? Have you this week, with all the chaos, are you offering up the answer to the chaos or are you just glad it's not chaotic in your neighborhood? Jesus responds. Well, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? Now listen, Jesus did this a number of times when he talked at the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, this, this Pharisee, this Sadducee, this lawyer, if he'd have been just paying any attention, six times, last summer, we studied the Sermon on the Mount, and there is a teaching monomic specifically in Matthew 5 that explains to you what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5. And, and maybe you'll remember it. In Matthew 5, it's, it's Jesus says this six times. You have heard, but I say to you. You have heard, but I say to you. You have heard, but I say to you. And finally, way down there in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, he says, you have heard it said. And then he goes and quotes Leviticus 19, 18. But watch this. I'm going to read it to you. In Matthew uh, 5, verses 43 and 44, I don't even think I, I gave it to these guys, but it says this. Specifically, Jesus says to them, you shall love your neighbor. He quotes, of course, he quotes Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor. 
and hate your enemy. That's what your, that little part right there, you see how it's not in, in all block letters? It's because it's not a quote from the Old Testament. We're never supposed to hate our enemy. In the very same chapter where we're called to love our neighbor, we're to love the stranger. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which is crazy. Because I'm saying to you, you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What's written in the law, man? How does it read to you? What do you think it says? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. That is 100 on question one. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, 18. That's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 22. That's 100 on question two. And Jesus goes, you've answered correctly. Well done. Perfect. But here's the problem. The guy didn't say what he should have said when he quoted that. What you and I should say when, when Jesus says, Todd, read your Old Testament, read the law. What, 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 how does it read to you? It reads like, I haven't got a chance. That's how it reads. It reads like there is no way I can be that guy. In fact, I know I'm not that guy. What I should do when I read my Old Testament is go, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is why when Jesus kept saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he wraps it up in Matthew 5, 48. Hey, here's the summation of the law. Be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect, in which case we should go, uh-oh. Right, I mean, do you, do you, when I tell you that, here's God's standard, be perfect. Do you go, okay, tracking with you, what else? <laughs> or do you go, uh-oh. Watch. Wishing to justify himself. That's where you know the guy's a lawyer, right? Because he's about to tear into this thing right now. He's going to go, well, who's my neighbor? <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, like when Jesus says to Pilate, um, that everyone who was of the truth knows who I am, Pilate goes, what's truth? And then he walks out and talks to the Jews. Pilate didn't go, what, everyone who knows truth is right with you? What, tell me what truth is, Jesus. Pilate didn't do that. He goes, what is truth? Who, who, who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, well, let's see if I can tell you a little story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You know this one? Have you ever heard this story? A man went down. But you know why he's telling it now? Have I kind of told you that you're dead? This is not a marriage movie. This is not how to have a better marriage and improve your communication with God. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You don't love God, and you don't love your neighbor the way God says you should. 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's about a 3,000 foot drop. Just to go show you, here's a little map. I'm not gonna be here long. That's Jerusalem up there on the left. You take a little dip down to the Kidron Valley. You walk up the Mount of Olives. It's not a big mountain. It's Flagpole Hill over there if you're a Dallas guy. You go down the shoulder. You walk about 17 miles. You get to Jericho, which is about 1,000 feet below sea level. It's about a 70 to 20 mile hour walk. It is a windy road. It is through a cavern. It is through the Judean wilderness. There is nothing but crevices and cracks and caves. And it is called the path of blood. Because the rocks are red and because thieves and bandits hit on this road. To this day, I've been on this road. You get on that road and you'll see where they go. We think this is maybe where Jesus, you know, was, well, this is where he was referring to when he told the story of the Good Samaritan. Everybody knew you didn't want to walk on this road alone. So he's telling a story. Everybody can place themselves into it. They knew what was going on. They fell among robbers and stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. You're more than half dead, but let me just leave it there. You're not all the way dead yet. You're mostly dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. But Miracle Max can give you life. But it's appointed that after you're like dead, dead, judgment's going to come. So mostly dead people, pray that you've got ears to hear and that you're revivified by the gospel. Verse 31, by chance, <laughs> by chance, oh, by chance, a priest was going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Right now you're reading this going, that dagnum priest. What's he doing? I'm so much better than that priest. If I saw a guy beaten and bloody in the side of the road, I'd at least dial 911. Likewise, the Levite also, I'm not going to talk about the priest you know, too much other than to say this is a guy who, who, whose job is to, is to be mediated between God and man and talk about mercy and grace. The Levite's the guy who worked in the temple and, and was there all the time. And so if Jesus is going to tell a natural story, he would say a priest, the most holy class, a Levite, guys who worked in the church, maybe just a normal Jew. But he doesn't do that. There's a twist here. In verse 33, he says, but a Samaritan, a what? A Samaritan? Are you kidding me? Who is on this journey? This is the man that is the least likely to be a neighbor to anybody because nobody's a neighbor to him. He's hated, he's despised. Two are Samaritans. They are Jews that lived in Israel after the Assyrians came and judged and wiped out Israel so God could get their attention. Some of them stayed behind. It wasn't a perfect ethnic cleansing. So there were some Jews that were there and the occupying Syrian forces came out and they started to marry and give themselves to and they bred themselves into the Syrian nation. And they, they lost some of their faithful Jewishness or if nothing else, the bloodline wasn't poor. And so when there was the return from exile, they came back, the Jews said, ah, oh, you guys, you, you can't love God because your blood's not pure. They wouldn't even let them come down and rebuild the wall with them or rebuild the temple with them. And so they built their own temple up in Samaria because they still wanted to worship God. And now they thought, man, they're, they're racially compromised, they're religiously compromised, there's nothing good in Samaria. In fact, if you look at what the Jews said about Jesus in John chapter eight, when they really wanna curse Jesus, they say, you're a Samaritan and a demon-possessed one. There's nothing worse you could call somebody if you're a good Jew than a Samaritan. But it says this Samaritan came along, he felt compassion, he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, he put him on his beast, he brought him to an inn, took care of him. Now let me just say this, you know, I, I, I could go through this a little bit. Look what he did, this guy, he gave not just time, but not just money, but he gave time and money. Because he, didn't, he spent the night with him and the next day he took out two denarii, which is um, more than a day's wage. 
we know because we found some boards with writings on it from archaeological times, I mean, from, from archaeology that, are, that take us back to about this time and age, that these kind of ends, this is not the Four Seasons. This is like a, a hostel. This is like the, the dregs of the earth would stay there. And so if you give a guy two denarii, we know that the rent in an inn like this, and an inn was welcome to all people, and anybody could stay there, and it cost you about one thirty-second of a denarii. So this guy showed up, he put the guy on his animal, and he went out of his way to care for him with his time and his money. He left his journey to care for this brother, and he gave him 60 days worth of provision. And then he goes to the guy who runs this inn that were notoriously probably not the highest ethnic people. And he said, look, take care of this guy. I'm going to go. And when I come back, if you had to do more for him than I've given you money for, tell me, I'll make you whole. And if there was ever a chance for somebody to take advantage of you, that was it. This is such abundant care and provision that when Jesus is telling this, like, oh, come on. A Samaritan, I mean, that's, 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 that's an enemy. It's an enemy to the Samaritan there. That, that, that guy in the ditch hates the Samaritan. Religiously, raciously, every single way. And he didn't just go over there and call 911. You're telling me he took a detour from his business trip and he gave two months of hotel service and then he went back and said, I'll pay for whatever else? I mean, who does that? Who loves your neighbor like that? That's what you should say. But you go, no, every now and then I give the guy, you know, I don't give people money because they might use it for drugs and alcohol. I'll go to McDonald's and I'll buy them a, 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 like a number two. And I'll give them the drink and the, and the fries and the burger. And then I'll say, there you go. That's what I do. Well, A, I'm not sure that's loving. But what be loving is say, hey, man, come on, live with me. I've got stories. I wish I had time to tell them of members of our body that are doing that right now. Or they're just saying, bro, you want out? Come on, I'll get you out. We'll work together. We'll get to know you. We'll deal with your trouble. We'll deal with your sin. I mean, I'm gonna have a relationship with you, not just do something that makes me feel better. And not just people that are homeless, literally, but people that are, that are, that are spiritually homeless, that are their friends, where they're loving them and they're getting yelled at and getting cursed at, but they keep on ministering to them. Let me just go. And at the end of the story, Jesus answers this question. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor the man, to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Because this is now the question. Jesus is trying to tell him, hey, because the question was, how do I hear it and turn to life? And, and the guy answered correctly. And then Jesus says, hey, you've answered well. Go and do this, right? It's going to be awesome if you, you know, um, do what you think you're supposed to do. Well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story. And so Jesus now asked the question, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor? And he said, and the one who showed mercy to him. And again, notice he didn't say, but Lord, I've never showed mercy to anybody like that in my life. That's just so otherworldly. That's so supernatural. That's so, I mean, um, you have heard it said, you should love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. And I say to you, you should love your neighbor. You should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't do that. God, I'm a wretch. I'm nothing like the God of the Old Testament. Because the truth is, I'm somebody that has cursed God. I'm somebody that's been stolen from and killed and destroyed and left in the ditch of sin. And unless God rescues me, I could never be rescued. I'm that guy. I'm an offense to you. He didn't say that. By the way, the story doesn't tell us what the lawyer did. Because it's, at this point, not really about the lawyer. It's about you and me. And we should do what the lawyer never did. 
So let me just give you something. What's going on here is that Jesus is coming into this situation and he's trying to tell the guy a story to push away the fog of his self-righteousness. The key to eternal life, this is the first major point, the key to eternal life begins with putting to death your internal lawyer, your defender, your justifier. You've got to go, I'm guilty. There is no defense. I am not righteous. I don't love God. If I love God, I'd love people the way God loves people. Martin Luther was once asked what he would do if he was God. He goes, if I was God, I would catch the kick the vile, wretched earth to pieces. That's what I'd do to earth. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you go, enough? But no, God puts a bow in the clouds and says, I'll never destroy the earth by flood again. I'm going to destroy it by fire, but before I destroy it by fire, I want to pull out folks that are destined for the fire, and I want them to know that I love them. The key to eternal life begins with putting to death your eternal lawyer. Your defender, your justifier, and admitting your guilt. This is Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle and the meek who, who live underneath the guidance now of a God that redeems them, for the earth is going to be theirs. How about this? True children of God, true children of the kingdom. Listen to me. True children of the kingdom are those who are poor in spirit, who realize they do not and cannot meet the standard of the law. Nobody loves the way that guy loved. And not just one guy, but everybody you meet all the time. Because you love God all the time. Do you love God all the time with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind? Your mind never runs away after self. Is that you? Well, you don't even do that. But Jesus just says, oh, I'll just use the neighbor with you. It's kind of what he did with the rich young ruler, by the way. The rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes to himself, oh, I'll tell you, what, you don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. The guy goes, all right, I haven't done that. Now, he wasn't with Jesus apparently when Jesus told him, you've heard it said, but I say to you that murder is not just killing somebody, but saying I hate you to somebody. But when the, but the, when the rich young ruler said, oh, I've done all these things. Jesus says, well, there's one thing you still lack. I'm going to show you that you don't love God with all your heart. Go sell all your possessions and follow me. And it says the guy went away sad because he loved something more than Jesus. Now, I'm not telling you that you need to go sell all your possessions if you love Jesus. I'm telling you if Jesus tells you as an example to show how much you love him, you should sell all your possessions, you should sell all your possessions. What Jesus tells you to do, you should do with your possessions, is steward them as if they're not yours because they're not. So, church, you don't need to give away all your possessions, but you do need to steward them as if they're not yours. And you need to quit acting like tithing is a tax. Because the New Testament doesn't talk about tithing, it talks about being as generous as you can to advance the mission. How you doing, church? Do you love something more than God? We all do. I do. I love me some me. And I need Jesus. And I want to become more like him. True children of the kingdom are those who are poor in spirit, realize they do not and cannot meet the standard of the law, who cry for mercy because they've received mercy, they purpose to be merciful to others. 
See, there is a little application there about being merciful to others. But it's not so we can earn salvation. It's because I want to be like my Jesus. I want to be like my God who is merciful for me. So let me just give you a quick comment on that real quick because it's overwhelming, right? There's this thing out there that scientists study. It's called compassion fatigue where you see so many needs that are out there, you get frozen. You don't know what to do. And so you post a black square on Instagram because that's going to be your big contribution. And what I would just encourage you to do, if you want to be merciful like Jesus is merciful, is just care for your genesis. Care for those that you're around. Start by loving your neighbor. Start by making sure everybody in your neighbor know, neighborhood knows, hey, I'm here, and as weird as it sounds, I want you to know I'm Jesus' ambassador. He's got embassies all over, and the embassy here, this address on your neighborhood, this is where Christ's followers live, and I'm here to love you and serve you and tell you about who our God is. Not just by preaching at you, but by loving you and making this neighbor different because I'm here and I know Jesus. Start there. So here's just a good, quick little application on that. Just do for one what you wish you could do for all. Don't get compassion fatigue. Just do for one what you wish you could do for all. Sign up with our, our service opportunities. We're trying to make it easy for you. We've got service opportunities for folks that don't want to go someplace because of COVID. You can write notes and do things. And we've got people that can go places and do things. Just at least start there. Just do for somebody something. Just because you can't do everything for everyone doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything for anyone. There are more people beaten and bleeding and impoverished and suffering in our world than we could ever care for as a body. But let's just at least care for those that we walk by and we're in conversations with. Amen? So there's the application. Not so we can submit our resume, but because we follow the righteous one. Amen? Okay. Okay. Jesus did what nobody else could have done. Jesus went to the cross and did for us what we could never do. Like, so we are beaten and bloodied and left to die. And he rescued us. And he did more than give us an abundant provision. He gave the only thing that could be given. In, in John chapter 13, when Jesus has just got through instituting communion as a remembrance of his broken body and shed blood, Simon Peter said to him in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, I'm going to go, and you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me later. Now watch this. Peter said, Lord, I, why can't I follow you right now? I'm going to lay down my life for you. And, Peter, and Jesus says, well, first of all, Peter, you're going to lay down your life for me, bro? No. I said to your rooster, you're not going to crow today before you deny me three times. You don't know how to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, Peter. I know you want to, but you can't. And by the way, even if you could follow me to a place where you'd be sacrificed for your faith, it wouldn't be enough because you're a sinner and all you'd be doing is offering your own life for your own sin. I'm going to go someplace you can't go. Where was Jesus going? He was going to a cross where the holy, sinless Son of God, who had never sinned and was without sin, could stand before a holy God and give to that holy God what a holy God demands, which is a holy and perfect sacrifice. And he says, Peter, you can't go here and do that because you're not holy, but I can. And when I go there and I make provision for you, you can follow me into the presence of the Father. But you've got to acknowledge you don't love God and you need me. The problem with this lawyer who sought to justify himself is he didn't think that he wasn't good enough for God. He thought he was plenty good for God. And God was saying, oh, baby, you don't know how sick you are. You don't love your neighbor like you think you do. And I'm telling you, don't just love your neighbor, love your enemies. You don't do that. You throw your TV at, your shoe at your TV when CNN is on. 
You don't pray for them. Jesus did what nobody could have done but him, and you need to do what nobody can do but you. And that is to confess your sin before a holy God. And say, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. These are people not born, who were born not of blood. In other words, you don't become a Christian because you're a son of a Christian. Not born of the will of the flesh. You don't become a Christian because I want you to be a Christian. Nor the will of men. You don't even become a Christian because you want to be a Christian. You're born of God. Because when you prayed a little bit earlier in this message that the Son would reveal to you the Father, he's always going to do that if you just ask him. And then he gets all the glory. I don't know why you're listening this morning. I don't know why you're here today other than grace. He's brought you to this story so you could see you don't love God. You don't love your neighbor. But you've got a Savior who is not a Samaritan with a demon. He's the Son of God with the spirit of truth. And he gave himself for you. And you run to him. And you run with him. And be gracious to others, but not so you got a resume, so that others will see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. So people know you're his disciple. So Genesis comes up to me. She's hoping I forgot, but I didn't. And... Um, I go, come on, Genesis, lay it on me. What do you do? She goes, well, I've been thinking about it. Here's what you do. She goes, you can't really love people till you love yourself. And so I think what you need to do is you've got to make peace with yourself. And once you're at peace with yourself, you can be at peace with others and treat your family the way you should. And then I think that's the way we kind of get good with God. So the first thing you've got to do is just be honest with yourself, be true to yourself. And when you're true to yourself, you can truly know God. And I said, Genesis, Thank you so much for sharing that. I go, do you mind if I share with you, if you ask me that question, how I'd respond? And I go, it breaks my heart. This is why I invited you to come hang out where we are because I want you to know what God wants you to know. And, and let me tell you, I think you've got it right in this way. You've got to start by being honest to yourself. So let me ask you a question, Genesis. Are you, are you I mean, you're really nice to me, but are you somebody who is good all the time? In Genesis, I mean, are you somebody that loves everybody? Do you treat your fellow workers here with great kindness? Are you more excited when they get a big tip than you? Are you loving your family well? I mean, you talk to me about your little son. Um, you know, you have a baby daddy. How's your relationship with him? Did you even love God more than you loved what you pursued with that guy when you pursued it with your guy? I mean, Genesis, let's just be honest with yourself. You don't love God with all of your heart. And so if you're honest with yourself, you and I would both agree that you're a sinner. Would you agree that you sin, Genesis? I do. Would you agree that you're a sinner? She goes, well, I, 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 mean, I guess, yes. I go, that's the first thing you gotta do. That's the beginning of your relationship with God. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Genesis, you don't get honest with yourself and get right with people so God can put up with you. You acknowledge there's nothing that you could ever do. And then Genesis, what you do is you run to God's provision. And you take his gift for you, a sinner like me. So here's what I'm gonna do, Genesis. In a minute, we're gonna leave and I'm gonna give you a tip. I'm going to give you a 20% tip. You've done a great job. It's pretty normal for an, a good job. And on that little bill, I'm going to write down your tip. That's what you've earned. The wages of your serving me well is on that tip. 
And so you're going to get it, and you're going to take it. But next to it, I'm going to put a $20 bill. It's there. It's a free gift. It's not something you've earned or deserved. But I'm going to put 20 bucks right next to it. And you don't have to take it. You can leave it there on the table if you want to. But it's my gift to you. And God's offered you a gift for your sin. It's the sacrifice of his son for your wretched, eternally damned soul. But you've got to take it when someone gives you a gift. And I said, Genesis, I'm going to put this 20 down here. And if you don't take it, you think one of your other waiters or waitresses would come by and take it? He goes, oh, yeah, they'll take it. And I go, what do you think they'd say to you if they go, what's that 20? You go, that's a gift a guy left me. I don't want it. What do you think they'd say to you? They'd think I was crazy. I go, can I just tell you something? You're even crazier if you don't pick up the gift that Jesus offered you. But you've got to take it, not just know about it. It's got to be yours. You've got to own it, and you've got to be thankful for it. And so this is just my, this is, you know, I just took a little picture, you know, I put it, um, there's the, there's the bill, you know, there's the tip, Romans 5, 8, I put Romans 6, 23, I put John 3, 16, I put Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I just left it there for her and I took off. I hope she's watching this morning. I told her to come on, but this isn't about Genesis. It's not about the lawyer. It's not about the good Samaritan, the priest, the Levite, it's about you. It's about you. Are you still trying to justify yourself or are you ready to be justified? Retold. True stories from the Bible. Do you know what this movie's about? It's about God's redeeming you from the pit and you wholly surrendering to him, not so you offer him a resume, but because you see his way is beautiful and true. Father, I pray. Somebody in this room would run up here and go, you know what, Todd? I've been just a dead religiositor. I've just been somebody who's danced around stories like this. I try to be a good Samaritan, and I, I still, if you ask me what makes me righteous in God's eyes, I'm going to basically give him my resume. I'm going to tell him what I've done, and I need to repent because I know what I've done. What I have done is I've sinned against God and man. I don't love people with lavish, generous, always, never-failing love, and I don't love you that way, God. My heart, my soul, my mind, my strength are given to other things. I'm a sinner. And I thank you that you are, are, are filled with loving kindness to thousands of generations. I thank you that you are um, a God that is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But, Lord, I know that by no means will you let the guilty go unpunished. And I profess my guilt. The wages of my life is sin and death. Maybe not as bad as others sin. There's Hitlers and Dahmers out there. But, Father, there is a Todd Wagner out there that needs a Savior. And I don't want to justify myself. I am overwhelmed that you have been the provision for me that I might be justified. So I come. And I see how deep the Father's love is for me. And I confess my sin, my poverty of spirit, and I thank you for your grace and mercy through Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, and raised from the grave for me, and I put my hope on him and nothing less. And then, Father, help me to learn his ways and to love as he loved so that men will know that I'm your disciples and they can see my good works, this church's good works, and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. Father, help us to wholly surrender. In Jesus' name.